Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. You're listening to episode 102 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about remote viewing and the U.S. government's psychic spying program, Stargate. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the 1970s, a pair of physicists began investigating psychic phenomena on behalf of the government. The government wanted to find out if psychic powers really exist and, if they do, whether they could be used to help our intelligence agencies like the CIA. The scientists began working with a variety of psychics and the psychic power that seemed most promising was known as remote viewing. And they reported many surprising successes with remote viewing. The intelligence agencies were so intrigued that they established a secret project known as Stargate which was staffed by secret military personnel who were trained in remote viewing. So what is remote viewing? Does a psychic power like this exist? And could governments use it to spy on other nations? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, we often bring up whether we have a personal connection to some of the mysteries that we discuss. Do you have a personal connection to this one? Not a strong one, but as I mentioned in previous episodes, when I was a teenager, before I really became an active Christian at the age of 20, I had a flirtation with the New Age movement and did a lot of reading about psychics and psychic abilities. I even heard rumors of the government psychic spying program, and I was aware of a novel that was written by one of the key psychics we'll be talking about. His name was Ingo Swan, and in 1979, he wrote a novel called Starfire. I didn't read it, but it was about a psychic working for the government. When I left my teenage years, though, I became a committed Christian and put the New Age stuff behind me. All right. So we've talked about psychic phenomena in previous episodes. What should people check out if they'd like to learn more about what we've said? The main one they'll want to listen to is episode 79, which is on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. In that episode, we talked about the history of these concepts, how once they were all bound up together, but then they came over time to be disentangled and distinguished from each other. One of the things we did in that episode was to distinguish psychic phenomena from supernatural phenomena. Uh, the supernatural is real. God is real. Angels are real. Demons are real. And supernatural beings can manifest themselves and affect things here on Earth. The question is whether psychic phenomena are real. The basic claim is that human beings have certain abilities that are currently poorly understood. These in supposedly include things like telepathy, telekinesis, and remote viewing which we'll be talking about in this episode. These abilities are supposed to be purely natural. That is, they're built into human nature. They could be abilities that are based on our physical bodies, or they could be based on our souls, because we also have a spiritual side to our nature in addition to the physical side. 
or they could involve both our bodies and our souls. Either way, they would be things that are based on human nature and thus be purely natural, something we're capable of doing, not something that supernatural beings like God or angels or demons have to directly intervene in. Before we get into today's story, we need to let the listeners know how we'll be handling it. Jimmy, what do we need to tell them? Well, remote viewing is a big topic, and we'll be dealing with it in future episodes. For example, we'll have a whole episode devoted to just the history of the Stargate Project. But at the moment, we'll be doing a two-parter, because even the introduction to remote viewing is a big subject. In today's episode, we'll be looking at how remote viewing got started and what led up to the creation of the Stargate Project. Then in our next episode, we'll be looking at remote viewing from the faith and reason perspectives and what the evidence has to say about it. All right. So let's start by meeting the scientists in our story. Who are they? There are two, and the first is a man named Hal Putoff. He was born in 1936 in Chicago, and at the time we're recording this, he's still alive at age 83. He received a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Stanford University here in California, and he did a lot of work on lasers, which were only invented in the 1960s. So he was an early laser guy. Putoff invented tunable lasers and electron beam devices, and he holds several patents. He's also the co-author of the academic textbook, Fundamentals of Quantum Electronics. And in addition to his work on lasers and remote viewing, he's also been involved in investigating zero-point energy, or what powers ZPMs or ZPMs for Rodney McKay. <laughs> He's also involved in the To the Stars Academy with Tom DeLonge, and so you'll have seen him if you've watched the unidentified documentary series based on the ATIP UFO program. And the, who's the second scientist? His name is Russell Targ. He was born in 1934, also in Chicago, and he's also still alive at age 86. He got a Bachelor of Science in Physics from Queens College in New York, and he also did a couple of years of graduate work in physics at Columbia University. He also did early work on lasers in the 1960s. After his work on remote viewing, he became a senior scientist for Lockheed, doing work in electro-optics. He's worked on LIDAR systems that use lasers to accomplish similar effects as radar. And despite the fact he's legally blind, he's a motorcycle enthusiast and has written a memoir titled, Do You See What I See? Memoirs of a Blind Biker. Wow. So the scientists were working with psychics, of course. Who was the first one that they brought into their studies? His name was Ingo Swan. He was born in 1933 in Telluride, Colorado, and he died in New York City in 2013 at the age of 79. Swan was the single most important psychic because he was responsible for key developments in the study of remote viewing. In fact, even though the scientists worked with a number of different psychics, we're going to keep the focus on Swan to keep the story simple, because he's the main connecting thread in the story, and we don't want the episode to get ridiculously long. If you want to read about the other psychics that were involved, though, we're going to have links to some books in the further resources, and you can certainly check those out. In 1955, Ingo Swan got a degree with a double major in biology and art. He then entered the army and spent three years in South Korea, helping keep that country safe in the aftermath of the Korean War. In 1958, he got out of the army and moved to New York City, which he loved, and it would be his home for the rest of his life. 
He moved there to begin a career as an artist on the New York art scene, but it takes a while to get a career like that going, so he spent over a decade working as a clerk for the United Nations. And how did Swan become a psychic? He ended up meeting people in high society on the New York social scene, and that's how he first came into contact with parapsychological researchers. Swan had had psychic experiences as a child, and so he ended up becoming a test subject for the American Society for Psychical Research, or ASPR, in New York. This organization had been founded back in 1885 by the famous philosopher and physician William James, who also was an early parapsychology researcher. By 1971, when Swan got involved, a lot of new technology had been invented, and so they would hook Ingo up to machines to monitor his blood pressure and brain waves as they did the psychic experiments. Today, you know, they'd probably add like, you know, magnetic resonance imaging or CAT scans or stuff like that. For some of the experiments, they would have Ingo seated in a chair hooked up to the equipment, and then a research assistant would come into the room and put something in a tray that was suspended from the ceiling directly above Swan's head where he couldn't see it. He was then asked to psychically float above his body and describe what was in the tray. Swan found that he quickly got impressions of what was in the tray, but he had trouble verbalizing it, so he used a piece of paper, he used a pad of paper, to draw it instead. He then gave his drawings to an independent judge who did not know which objects Swan was being asked to draw in a given trial, so this was a double-blind experiment. Swan was blind to the object in the tray, and the judge was blind to which object he was supposed to be sketching. The challenge was to see if the judge could match the sketch to the correct object for that trial. If the judge matched the sketch to the correct object, it was scored as a hit. If the judge couldn't, it was scored as a miss. The results of this study were published in the ASPR's summer 1972 newsletter, and the judge was able to match all eight of Swan's sketches to the correct items in the correct order, something that the ASPR estimated had only a 1 in 40,000 chance of happening randomly. However, as an artist, Swan had an artistic temperament and was easily bored with such experiments, so he proposed trying something new. Here's how military remote viewer Paul Smith describes the new experiment in his book, Reading the Enemy's Mind. Swan had grown tired of the repetitive, boring, describe what's in the box and other traditional experiments he'd been tasked with. If one could perceive things in a box in the same room, he wondered, why not see if it would work over much greater distances? But the immediate question was how such a thing could be tested. Before long, he and research assistant Janet Mitchell came up with a simple procedure that would involve a distant target and still allow immediate feedback for judging the accuracy of the perceptions. The procedure they devised also reasonably guaranteed that no alternative to ESP could help the subject, Swan, cheat by getting the information from some other more conventional source. The names of a number of cities around the country, together with the telephone numbers to their respective local weather services, were sealed inside identical opaque envelopes. At the commencement of the experiment, a disinterested third party would randomly select an envelope. Swan would be given the name of the city thus selected, and then would provide his impressions of the current weather there. It was a simple but workable pilot experiment. 
And for younger listeners, we should say a word about how this experiment worked. Uh, Today, you can just go on the Internet and look up the weather in a particular city. But back in 1971, you couldn't. The quickest way to find out back then was to place a phone call to the local weather service of wherever it was you wanted to know the weather for using a landline attached to a wall with a cord, and you even had to pay extra because it was long distance. (laughs) So a third party in this experiment would randomly select one of the envelopes with the name of the target city. And since Swan wouldn't know the name of the target city until the last moment, he wouldn't be able to find out what the weather was doing there by natural means, or at least that's the idea. Here's what happened. On December 8th, 1971, Swan reported for duty as a research subject at the offices of the ASPR. He was wired to an electroencephalograph machine, an EEG, to record his brainwaves, as was common practice during other ASPR experiments. At the appropriate moment, Vera Feldman, an ASPR staffer who was otherwise unaffiliated with the research project, handed Mitchell an envelope that had been randomly chosen from the stack. Mitchell, who was in a different room from Swan, passed the target to him over the intercom. Tucson, Arizona. Of course, I really had no idea how to get to Tucson from the rather ugly experimental room in New York, Swan said years after the event, and when I first heard the mention of Tucson, Arizona, a picture of hot desert flashed through my mind. But then suddenly he was there. I'm over a wet highway, he reported, buildings nearby and in the distance. The wind is blowing, it's cold, and it's raining hard. He had the impression of water glistening on a highway, followed by the immediate awareness that Tucson, which gets only a few inches of rain a year, was in the middle of a torrential downpour. That's it? Janet Mitchell queried. Yeah, that's it. It's raining and very cold there, Swan concluded. She dialed the Tucson Weather Service number. Before Swan had even gotten himself disentangled from the EEG wires, Mitchell had the feedback. Right now, Tucson is having unexpected thunderstorms, and the temperature is near freezing. So Swan correctly got the fact that Tucson was having very unusual weather. Also, because this will be important later, notice that he mentioned that he first had the image of a hot, dry desert in his mind and then got the impression of it being cold and raining hard. And... Swan was able to do this successfully in a repeated fashion, which led to a key moment in the history of remote viewing. Over the course of coming weeks, a number of similar experiments were done. As things developed, it was soon clear that a label was needed for what it was that Swan was doing. After discussions between him and the researchers, Ingo suggested the term remote viewing, and a new discipline, a new research program, And ultimately, a new era in parapsychology was launched. So it was Ingo Swan who coined the term remote viewing. He also would be responsible for other key innovations in the field. We do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible and our ability to discuss this amazing topic of remote viewing. Uh, This time we're thanking Patrick C., Heidi M., Benjamin H., Gerardo S., and Helen O., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation. 
making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. How did Ingo get hooked up with the scientists in our story? At the time, Hal Putoff was working for the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI. SRI is an extremely important and prestigious scientific research institute. It was established in 1946 by the trustees of Stanford University, and it's based in Menlo Park, California, not to be confused with Thomas Edison's home base in Menlo Park, New Jersey. SRI performs lots of research and development projects for the government, private sector businesses, and foundations. Also, later in our story, we'll mention another research group known as the Science Applications International Corporation, or SAIC. SAIC is also a government contractor, and it's quite prestigious. And on a personal note, I happen to know a former one-star general from the Army who works for SAIC. In 1972, one of the researchers that Ingo was working with showed him a letter from Hal Putoff, and Ingo decided to write him and suggest some lines for parapsychology research. Putoff ended up inviting Swan out to California, and he came to San Francisco in June of 1972. Initially, they gave Swan a telekinesis test, but that's a story for another time. Here, we're going to be focusing on his remote viewing work. But after the telekinesis test, Putoff drafted a paper about the test, and it was privately circulated. And one day, a couple of men in suits showed up at his office door without an appointment, wanting to know if he had written the telekinesis paper. They showed him their credentials, which revealed that they worked for the CIA. The CIA was interested in psychic phenomena because they had learned that the Russians were pouring a lot of research money into it. They were afraid of what would happen if the Soviet Union was able to get proof of psychic phenomena and then find a way to exploit it in the Cold War. A year ago, I volunteered for a Psycorps experiment. It was an attempt to make telepaths even stronger. Why? Because in this business, whoever has the strongest telepath wins. The military wants to scan the enemy. The enemy wants a telepath strong enough to block the scan. And we want someone who can cut through the block. They said it was necessary to help protect Earth. Then one day, I woke up and I could see everything. And that's when I discovered the truth. You see, that was the real purpose behind the experiment, to create a stable telekinetic. And telekinetics can have potentially useful applications in a Cold War, which is why the initial telekinesis experiment caught the CIA's eye. I thought they wanted telekinetics for big jobs, heavy construction and zero gravity or defense. I mean, imagine a telekinetic shield as a defense against beam weapons for diplomats or presidents. But they didn't want big. No, they wanted mental control over small objects. The smaller, the better. Jason, that doesn't make any sense. No? Think about it. You want to assassinate someone. So you bring in a telekinetic. He reaches into the person's throat and then gently, quietly, with a thought, he pinches the carotid artery shut. The blood stops. The brain starves. The target dies. And then you just let go. Murder without a trace. No fingerprints, no poisons. 
So the U.S. was already worried that we had a missile gap with the Soviet Union, and the CIA wanted to make sure that we didn't end up with a psychic powers gap, too. And that's why they approached Putoff. Paul Smith explains, The problem the agency faced was simple. It needed a credentialed scientist or academician who could hold a security clearance and do defense-related work in a secure facility. But this was the early 1970s when student unrest was at its height. Not only was military-related research anathema, to, no matter how crucial to national security it might be, but the CIA itself was thoroughly unwelcome on most campuses. It seemed unlikely that the agency could find any place in academia and outside the government to do the work needing to be done. Then Puthoff turned up, exactly the man they were looking for to examine the ramifications of Soviet ESP. He was respected as a physicist and employed by an institution that was already involved in classified government contracts. Because of its works on nuclear weapons research, Stanford Research Institute had been divested by the university and set up as an independent research organization to be called SRI International. Puthoff's former service as a naval intelligence officer at NSA was an added plus. It meant he had once been cleared for the highest levels of sensitive information and could easily be given access again. And he understood intelligence and the intelligence community much better than most scientists. It seemed a marriage made in heaven. The CIA guys thus asked Puthoff if they could observe his experiments with Swan, and Puthoff said yes. At the time, they were doing some what's-in-the-box experiments, and Puthoff even let the CIA agents select the objects that would go into the boxes. The visitors presented Swan with three sealed boxes. Regarding two of them, I approximated the hidden contents quite well, Swan related. In the other, though, he described something like a brown leaf, except it was on the underside of the lid and not at the bottom of the box. It also seemed alive, he said, but I didn't understand how a brown leaf could be thought of as alive. The box, it turned out, contained a living moth the CIA scientists had captured outside. It was reasonably large, was brown, and with its wings folded, it resembled a brown leaf which nature had designed it to look like. It was found clinging underneath the lid when the box was opened. Swan's identification of the brown moth that they just captured particularly impressed the CIA men, and they gave Putoff a $50,000 research grant to continue his studies. And that was a not inconsiderate amount of money back in 1972. One of the things the CIA asked Putoff and Targ to do was identify opportunities for operational use or ways in which the CIA could use psychic powers to help them with intelligence work. To explore such ways, they designed a new set of experiments where Ingo would be remotely viewing objects that weren't in the same room with him, something he'd already had success with back in New York when he was remotely viewing the weather in distant cities. The new experiments came to be known as the Outbounder Beacon experiments, and here's how Annie Jacobson describes them in her book, Phenomena. The way it worked was that two scientists or researchers called the Outbounder Team would begin their day at SRI. They'd randomly choose an envelope from a group of sealed envelopes kept in a safe. The team would leave the office and, once inside their vehicle, open the sealed envelope, which contained a photograph of a nearby landmark with an address written below. Targets included the courtyard of the Stanford Museum, the exterior of Palo Alto City Hall, and the local public tennis courts. The outbounder team would then drive to the target site, 
and wait there until a predetermined time, at which point one of them would survey the site with intent, mentally recording the target. At this same time, Swan, who was back at SRI, sitting inside a Faraday cage, would sketch what he perceived the outbounder was seeing and sending to him telepathically. The theory was that the outbounder would act like a beacon for the psychic in the Faraday cage. The fact that Ingo was kept in a Faraday cage during the experiment is significant. Faraday cages block electromagnetic fields. That's why your microwave doesn't irradiate you when you're nuking your food. It's a Faraday cage. So if you ever get word that we're about to have another massive solar storm like the Carrington event of 1859, which melted telegraph lines, you'll want to put your hard drives and any other electronic devices you care about in your microwave unplugged to keep them from getting fried. By putting the psychics like Ingo in Faraday cages, the scientists could make sure that they weren't receiving outside electromagnetic signals. That meant that they couldn't be wearing devices that would help them cheat, for example. It also let the researchers establish that their powers were not based on the electromagnetic spectrum. And that was significant because for a long time, it had been proposed that telepathy might be electromagnetic in nature, a literal form of mental radio, because radio works by electromagnetic waves. But the outbounder beacon experiment showed that that wasn't the case, at least for most of the electromagnetic spectrum. There is a portion that Faraday cages don't block. It's known as extremely low frequency waves, and those are used to communicate with submarines. So they later did a submarine test to rule that out as well. But the outbounder beacon experiments were a success. Annie Jacobson explains, Puthoff and Targ were excited by the results, so much so that they made plans to publish their work in a national science journal, scrubbed of any CIA affiliation, and to perhaps even write a book about remote viewing. Swan was underwhelmed. These ESP experiments are a trivialization of my abilities, he said, complaining that the experiments felt like grown-ups playing childish spy games. He was not supposed to know SRI's client was the CIA, but he later said he knew intuitively that this was most likely the case. And because of this, Swan accurately surmised that in the real world of espionage, the outbounder beacon approach was implausible. If an intelligence agency could get a spy to a physical location, what would it need a remote viewer for? Real CIA targets, Swan figured, would involve classified military facilities deep inside the Soviet Union. The inaccessibility of these targets was the problem, he told Puthoff and Targ, and their team should be working on a way to address this real-world challenge. Swan had a point. If the CIA could get a spy with line of sight on a particular target, they didn't need a remote viewer to tell them what the spy was seeing. Instead, they needed to be doing experiments where the psychic was viewing distant sites even where there was not an outbounder agent looking at them, like he had been doing with the What's the Weather in Tucson experiments. But there was a problem with this. Remember how when he guessed the weather in Tucson, the first image he got was of a hot, dry desert. And that's because that's what the area around Tucson normally looks like. I know I've been there. I even spent the night there once and like, wow, it was so hot in the <laughs> middle of the night. So, you know, that was the first image that Ingo got, and it was only after he dismissed that image that he got the impressions of the actual weather in Tucson, that it was raining hard and really cold. In signal processing, they make a distinction between what's called the signal 
and the noise. The signal is the information you want to receive in a transmission, while the noise is anything that interferes with the signal and makes it hard to process, like static, for example. If in the Tucson weather experiment, the impressions of rain and cold were the signal, while the image of the hot, dry desert was the noise. The experiments that they were performing at SRI suggested that noise was a big problem with remote viewing. They sometimes got really good results, but other times Ingo was encountering a lot of noise. So what would happen if the CIA wanted to have Ingo remotely view, say, an airbase in Russia? Immediately, his imagination would start producing images of what he knew airbases looked like, filling his mind with noise, just like his knowledge that Tucson is in a desert made him get desert imagery initially. What Ingo wanted to do was find a way to be directed to the site without knowing what was there, so his imagination couldn't start feeding him erroneous information. This is the opposite of what many people who claim to have psychic abilities want. They want to find out as much as possible about the target, which can be a sign that they're faking it, that they're making educated guesses based on the background knowledge they have. But Ingo was wanting to have as little background knowledge as possible to keep him from making educated guesses based on his imagination. The challenge was finding a way to have the researchers direct him to the target while keeping as much information as possible away from him. Eventually, he proposed a solution. Use map coordinates. He wanted the researchers to just give him a set of map coordinates, longitude and latitude in degrees, minutes, and seconds. Just tell him the coordinates and let him start psychically viewing that those coordinates. And what did Putoff and Targ think of that? Initially, they resisted the idea. For one thing, they pointed out that map coordinates are an entirely artificial set of human conventions. But then so are words like Tucson, and Ingo was able to find that. Another problem was that it would be possible for a person to guess some information about a target just based on the map coordinates. For example, if the target was located north of 66 degrees of north latitude, the psychic could realize that it's in the Arctic Circle and might start imagining snow and ice. In fact, a psychic who memorized a lot of things on the globe by their map coordinates could even use the coordinate system to cheat. But still, it was a way of giving a lot less information about the target than saying things like, please tell me about the Russian airbase just north of Moscow. And that was what convinced them to try? No, what convinced them was Ingo's artistic temperament. He threw a fit and threatened to quit the project, which was not simply an idle threat because he'd already stormed off from the experiments more than once when he was annoyed. Also, Swan wasn't the only character on the project. A lot of the people involved could be kind of eccentric. For example, Russell Targ, in keeping with the stereotype of the scientist who can be clueless about people issues, didn't fully appreciate how distracting it might be for Ingo, while trying to remotely view a location, to suddenly have a telephone start ringing right next to him. <laughs> In his book, Remote Viewers, Jim Schnabel recounts one incident. One day, Targ brought a phone into the testing room in order to take calls if necessary. He didn't think he should be tied down incommunicado by Swan even for 20 minutes. 
Swan walked in and saw this phone, this auditory bomb, waiting to detonate inside his central nervous system as soon as he began to concentrate on a target. When Targ declined to remove it, Swan, in frustration, reached down, grasped the phone, ripped it out of its jack on the wall, and hurled it, cord flailing, into the corridor. I love this story where the clueless scientist type collides with the oversensitive artist type. <laughs> In any event, Swan insisted and Putoff and Targ agreed to a limited series of tests during short breaks in the day between their regularly scheduled experiments. How did the new coordinate-based experiments go? According to Paul Smith, The scientists randomly picked 10 coordinates off a map in the next room. Describing only the most basic details at the sites, Swan rattled off one correct response after another. A coordinate in the northern polar region elicited the response of ice. A coordinate in the sea off the coast of the Iberian Peninsula produced the response of ocean, icy Spain off in the distance. Another one, centered in a tropical area, resulted in land, jungles, mountains, peninsular mountains. When they had gone through all ten coordinates, the results were encouraging enough that Putoff decided to run Swan under better scientific controls a few days later. Putoff chose 10 more coordinates, this time carefully selected to make the exercise harder. Small lakes in the middle of broad plains, islands in otherwise empty ocean, and so on. Swan's performance on these was just as convincing as with the first set. Altogether, 10 sets of 10 targets each were run. The final score for the last set of 10 was 7 obvious hits, 2 possibles, and only 1 certifiable miss. It truly looked like Swan was onto something with his idea of coordinate targeting. So they decided to take the experiments to the next level, and they asked the CIA to send them some coordinates. The upshot of it all was a call to the CIA to send some double-blind coordinates, locations that neither the researchers, Targ and Putov, nor the subject, Swan, knew anything about. The CIA was quick to respond. On May 29, 1973, Swan sat down with Putoff and the first CIA target. No one at SRI had any clue as to what was at the end of that set of degrees, minutes, and seconds. The target couldn't have provided a better test. It was a wooded area in the hills of West Virginia near a vacation cabin. Unknown to anyone involved in the experiment, including the person providing the coordinates, was that within walking distance of the cabin was a secret underground technical facility belonging to the National Security Agency. Even if the SRI researchers had tried to cheat by looking up the coordinates on a map, they would have found nothing. This seems to be some sort of mounds or rolling hills, Swan began. Some distance to the north, he described a city, and in the target area, a lot of grass. He quickly determined that in the immediate vicinity, there was nothing of particular interest. There was nothing at that coordinate, Swan recalls. So Hal, put off, told me to look around and there must be something there. I looked around and found this other place, which seemed to be removed from the coordinate about half a mile. At this place, Swan discovered manicured lawns, reminding him of those around a military installation. He also reported a flagpole, structures of various descriptions, and a strong impression of something underground. In its layout, the whole site suggested to him a former Nike Hercules missile base. He then sketched out a fairly detailed map of his impressions of where the various elements he had perceived were located. With a shrug and crossed fingers, the report was forwarded to their CIA contact. But the story didn't end there because Putoff also gave the same coordinates to another psychic, and less than a day later, the other psychic mailed him a letter with an even more detailed description of the secret facility. 
This included a description of what you'd see if you walked in to the secret facility, including the names on folders in file cabinets. And what was the CIA's response? They began an investigation of what was apparently a breach of security. The CIA analyst who wrote up the report was named Kit Green, and Annie Jacobson writes, On Monday morning, Kit Green wrote up a report for his superior at CIA. On Tuesday, the security officers came, he recalls. Security officers who were investigating a possibly treasonous violation of the Espionage Act of 1917. The names on the folders were correct, says Green. Their measurements of the details was correct. The location of the doors and the elevator, the number of floors, where the cabinets were located, the color of the cabinet was correct. It didn't take judging. It didn't take statistical processing. It was all correct. The CIA security investigation remains classified. According to interviews with Kit Green and Hal Putoff, each man was individually cleared by CIA of any wrongdoing. So the CIA was so alarmed by the accuracy of the details in the remote viewing session that they launched an investigation thinking that there had been a serious breach of security, though they couldn't find one. When the dust settled, the folks at SRI were convinced that Ingo's new system of remote viewing based on map coordinates worked, and so was born the next of Ingo's contributions to the field, what became known as CRV, or Coordinate Remote Viewing. Before moving on, though, we should mention that coordinate remote viewing is no longer the standard among remote viewers. It was later replaced by another protocol, also known as CRV, this time standing for controlled remote viewing. So why the change? One of the reasons is that the system of map coordinates has been dropped out. Ingo always wanted remote viewers to use map coordinates, which is perhaps, you know, not surprising since people tend to be attached to ideas they came up with. But other remote viewers didn't like the coordinates. They found them distracting, that they would generate noise rather than make it easier to read the signal. You know, when told the coordinates, their minds would start visualizing maps and wondering where on the globe a site was. Uh, well, you know, like we said, if it's above 66 degrees north, they'd know it's in the Arctic Circle, and so they'd start imagining that part of the world. Over time, as they viewed lots of different map coordinates and then got feedback on what was there, they would learn the coordinates of a lot of places on the globe, and they'd be distracted by comparing the coordinates of their target to the coordinates of other sites that they knew. So they wanted to go even further than Ingo and know even less about the target, not even its map coordinates. And so then how would they be directed to it? A variety of approaches were employed. Sometimes the actual map coordinates would be scrambled or encoded so that they were unrecognizable. Other times, they'd just be read a meaningless series of numbers and letters. You know, they'd say, like, go to XYZ123. And sometimes they'd just be told to go to the target. Surprisingly, they reported being able to do this without further information. It didn't matter even if the handler was also blind to the target. They could somehow still intuit the site that the client who commissioned the task wanted them to view. So Ingo's adding coordinates to remote viewing didn't stick? No, but he did make other contributions that advocates of the method have regarded as even more important. Uh, to understand how that worked, we need to talk a little bit more about the signal-to-noise ratio and how that works in signal processing. Thus far, we've mentioned some really impressive hits 
with remote viewing, like when Ingo identified the freak weather in Tucson or when he identified the moth in the box or when he and the other psychic produced so many accurate details of the secret base, the CIA launched an investigation. We have not focused as much on the misses when the information that early remote viewers were coming up with was inaccurate. Uh, We focused on the hits to make the point that there were some really striking hits in circumstances where it would be hard to cheat. However, you know, you can rack up any number of impressive hits by random chance if there are a counterbalancing number of misses. The ultimate question that needs to be answered and that we'll be talking about in the reason perspective is whether the number of hits exceeds the number of misses in a way that can't be chalked up to random chance. If the hits are much higher than you'd expect from chance, then that's evidence that this is a real phenomenon and not just people's imagination. But misses really did occur, and that was one of the key problems that researchers into remote viewing had to deal with. Often the psychics came back with results that were just garbage, and so they set about trying to solve that problem, which meant trying to find a way to increase the amount of useful information, the number of hits, while decreasing the useless information, the number of misses. In other words, they wanted to boost the signal and diminish the noise. One way of doing that was by finding a way to distinguish the signal from the noise, to find characteristics that told you if you were getting signal or just noise. By the late 1970s, Ingo set himself to solving this problem. In his book, Remote Viewers, Jim Schnabel writes... One could usually organize the information generated in a remote viewing session along a spectrum with two extremes. At one extreme was what one might call raw data in the form of very rough, unlabeled sketches of the target site and basic disconnected verbal descriptions such as dry, steep, sharp, low throbbing sound, and so on. At the other end lay more analytical, inductive, information-packed data, such as detailed drawings of target objects and precise verbal descriptions, tennis court, nuclear reactor, looks like it could be Hoover Tower. What Ingo and others noticed was that the raw sensory data, like dry, steep, and sharp, tended to be more accurate than the interpretations the remote viewers came up with, like tennis court, nuclear reactor, and Hoover Tower. These interpretations of the sensory data involved analysis on the part of the remote viewers where they were trying to analyze or make sense of the sensory data that they were getting. The analyses were overlaid on top of the raw sensory data, and so Ingo decided to call them analytical overlay, or AOL for short. He then set about trying to identify AOL so that it could be set aside. Jim Schnabel writes... By 1980, Swan had begun to develop a remote viewing technique that would separate the psi signal from noisy analytical overlay. His major insight here was to notice that when analytical overlay appeared in a remote viewing session, it almost always did so in a form of like a, or it seems to be a, or it reminds me of a, any such qualifier, especially like became to Swan a cue that analytical overlay was about to follow. With comparisons using words such as like or some kind of as a clue to identify analytical overlay, Swan could then try to separate the overlay from the raw sensory impressions of a site. 
But ultimately, someone needs to analyze the raw sensory data if you're going to produce usable intelligence. You can't just give the CIA a bunch of adjectives like dry, steep, and sharp and expect that to be useful to them, right? Correct. So what Ingo determined was that remote viewers needed to let the sensory impressions come in first and then they could be analyzed. In fact, the remote viewers themselves were in a good position to do the first stage of the analysis. They just needed to keep themselves out of analysis mode until they had a chance to receive the basic sensory impressions that they were supposed to analyze. They needed to keep their analysis in check in order to receive the signal so that it wouldn't be overwhelmed with noise from their imaginations. And what he did to facilitate this process was develop a structured, multi-stage process to help that happen. Ultimately, it became a six-stage process. What were the stages? Here's a description of them from the Remote Viewing Methodologies page on the International Remote Viewing Association's website. Stage 1. Perception of basic overall nature of the site or target, usually referred to as the major gestalt. Examples of these major gestalts might be land, structure, water, event, etc. Stage 2. Basic sensory perceptions. Tastes, sounds, colors, qualities of light, textures, temperatures, etc. Stage 3. Perception of the sites or targets' dimensional qualities, i.e. height, breadth, width, depth, angularity, curvature, density, etc. Sketching of viewer perceptions is an important aspect of this stage. Stage 4. Perception of increasingly complex and abstract perceptions about the site or target. Stage 5. Interrogation of the signal line allows details of the target to be more fully explored. Stage 6. Allows further sketching and three-dimensional modeling or sculpting of aspects of the site or target while acquiring further qualitative information. Here's remote viewer Paul Smith giving an example of what might come up in a session where a person was asked to remotely view the Eiffel Tower. In Stage 1, the viewer detects that the target is a structure. Stage 2 reveals that structure to be black, metallic, cool, bumpy, hard, tall, and pointed. Stage 3 shows that it tapers to the top and is made of crisscrossing elements that have open space between them. A good Stage 4 treatment will go on to reveal that the site involves tourism, is located in a park-like setting in an urban area, is not in the United States, the notion of French might even crop up, and has a restaurant associated with it. In Stage 5, the viewer might decide to see what more could be discovered about tourism. Going through the steps for Stage 5, the viewer could then bring to her conscious mind the ideas that originally caused her to say tourism. These could be impressions such as camera, sightseeing, visitors, souvenir, people wearing Bermuda shorts, etc. Obviously, there is more art than science to this process. One often has only intuition as a guide when deciding on a particular Stage 4 word to flesh out in stage five, and the viewer must be very careful to discriminate between legitimate impressions and other words the left brain might conjure up on its own as AOL or analytical overlay. There are safeguards built into the stage five technique, but they're not foolproof. Viewers' skill and experience are still crucial factors in using this technique successfully. Then one would move on to stage six, which Smith describes as follows. 
Picture Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, sculpting Devil's Tower out of a mountain of mashed potatoes. That was stage six, creating a physical model of a target in three dimensions, although our medium of choice was clay instead of food. So the remote viewer might use modeling clay to make a representation of the Eiffel Tower, or if he was sketching, he might make a sketch of the tower. It was this set of protocols that Swan developed and then trained the government's psychic spies in. Tell us about that program. When did it start? It started in September of 1977 when the U.S. Army set up a special unit in Fort Meade, Maryland. Originally, the project was called Gondola Wish. But since secret projects changed their names frequently to avoid exposure, its name was changed periodically, and eventually, in 1991, it was called Stargate. So there was a real Stargate project, but it had to do with remote viewing rather than physically traveling to alien worlds. Yes, the Stargate project has an interesting story of its own, and we'll actually be devoting an entire future episode to just the Stargate program. Kind of in this episode, we're laying the foundation with talking about remote viewing itself. Later, we'll go on to talk about the history of the program. One of the interesting things about it is that it eventually came to use people who, unlike Ingo Swan, were not natural psychics. The Army had a set of criteria they used to select people for the remote viewing program, but having natural psychic abilities was not one of them. They would select these people and then send them to Ingo, who would train them, and then he'd send them back to the program to do their work for the government. All right, we've covered the background on remote viewing up to the founding of the Stargate Project, and that gives us a good point to break with our story. Next episode, we'll look at what the evidence has to say about remote viewing from the faith and reason perspectives. Jimmy, can you let us know what theories we'll be covering? From the reason perspective, there are two basic theories. First, remote viewing is a genuine phenomenon, and second, it's not a genuine phenomenon. If it turned out that it is a genuine phenomenon, then from the faith perspective, we need to ask how we can explain it from a Christian point of view. And in light of that answer, we need to address whether it's something that would be morally legitimate to use or not. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. So what further resources can we offer the listeners to get them started uh, before next week? We'll have links to Paul Smith's book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, Annie Jacobson's book, Phenomena. Jim Schnabel's book, Remote Viewers, and Ingo Swan's novel, Starfire, which once again, I have not read. We'll also have pages on remote viewing, Hal Putoff, Russell Targ, Ingo Swan, the Stargate Project, as well as the government contractors, SRI and SAIC, where a lot of this early research was done. Also, information on Faraday cages. And also, if you wanted to know where the, the quotes we had from Babylon 5 were about military telepaths and telekinetics, they're from the episode Mind War. Yes. Uh, well, let's move on to our mysterious feedback, which comes from our radioactive Boy Scout episode. Uh, and our first feedback comes from Jason, who left a comment at sqpns.com. He says, I just listened to your radioactive Boy Scout episode and it hit way too close to home for me. First, I had heard he was from Michigan, but I didn't know where, and I thought it happened in the 70s or early 80s when laws on chemical sets were loose. Imagine my eye surprise when I learned he was born in 76, one year before myself, and that he did this while living in Golf Manor in 94, my neighborhood that I grew up in. 
At this point, I must correct Jimmy. He said that it was in Clinton Township, but all this took place in Commerce Township, my hometown. I lived there while this happened, but never knew about it till now. Thanks for scaring me to death with this one. Happy to oblige, and thank you for the geographical correction. My understanding was that Golf Manor and Clinton Township were two two communities within a broader metropolitan area, but I defer to your greater local knowledge. Yes, and I have to repeat uh, or, or concur on chemical sets used to be much more fun <laughs> back then. <laughs> I had one of those, and it was a lot more fun than the ones I've seen lately. <laughs> All right. Uh, then uh, from YouTube, the, the commenter, 20,000 subscribers without videos challenge writes. Good, good luck with the challenge. I'm really looking yes, for luck. you. I'd like to see how that's going. Uh, writes, I earned the same merit badge when I was in the Scouts. We were told about this guy as a cautionary tale. And it's. Good to see that the Boy Scouts have incorporated this story into their instruction for the Atomic Energy Merit Badge. It's good to let people know about this so they don't do similar things. Yes. And I can uh, say, and I think I said this before uh, in the in that episode, they do have a nuclear science merit badge still, which is great. And we have a member of our my daughter's scout troop who is qualified to teach it ah. so, to be the counselor. So that, that's that's pretty good. Uh, Jim writes on Facebook, loved this episode being from mid Michigan and only slightly older than Han. I'm surprised I'd never heard anything about him until now. It's a shame that he didn't have a good mentor to guide his passion for chemistry. He could have become brilliant. And that's a possibility. And several people commented on it's it's really too bad he didn't have a, a, a mentor to guide him because he could have channeled whether he would have been brilliant or not. He could have channeled his interest into atomic energy in constructive ways. Uh, then we got this Facebook message from Sam and Sam writes, I'm a seminarian from Australia and a longtime fan of your work on Catholic Answers and now your Mysterious World podcast. Something happened this past weekend that I thought was amusing enough to share with you. I went home to visit my family and the subject of your podcast came up in conversation. One thing led to another and all of a sudden, as is often the case, my brother's sister and I, as well as one of their girlfriends, were embroiled in a competition of who could best draw Jimmy Aiken in a 10 minute time frame. None of us are or claim to be artists by any stretch of the imagination, but I would argue that fact made the results 10 times more hilarious. My point is this. When it came time for my extremely biased brother to judge who was superior, no consensus could be found. So I humbly submit these images to you for their definitive judgment, which will be accepted by all as final. I will continue to pray for you and your great work. Regards, Sam. P.S. You know you made it when brothers and friends battle it out to draw your likeness. <laughs> well, I was not expecting that message when I logged into Facebook, um, <laughs> but I'm very honored and flattered. And we'll have a link in the show notes to a page on my website at jimmyakin.com where you can view all of the pictures they drew. They were competing to draw based on a photograph of me. So it's all it's different versions of the same one. And we always love getting fan art here at Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World from listeners. This is fan art number three. Keep sending in the fan art and check out the excellent drawings that they made. And also you'll find my definitive judgment to be accepted by all. <laughs> all right. And then, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? We have an odd objects theme in Mysterious Headlines. Out here in the West, we have tumbleweeds, which you see you know, in Western movies and stuff, they grow as bushes. But then at a certain point in the year, 
like late in the year, they detach from their roots and they tumble, the wind blows them, they tumble across the landscape, depositing their seeds. So that's why they're called tumbleweeds. I see them every year. I remember one year when we had massive fires, I went outside to go to mass on a Sunday morning and the landscape was orange and covered with ash. And as I was driving around, there was like a tumbleweed blowing down the empty street. And it's like, yes, I live in the West. <laughs> but sometimes, some years, I see massive amounts of tumbleweeds to just like take over and clump up in huge piles by the freeways and stuff. And so then I came across this video of a tornado of tumbleweeds. So it's really amazing. Some folks were driving around and encountered a tornado of tumbleweeds. It's <laughs> wow. So check that out. Definitely <laughs> odd objects. And speaking of odd objects, a British fisherman has found 60 mysterious metal cubes in like a stream. He was going magnet fishing with his kids, which is what you would think. It's using a magnet to pull up stuff. And he wouldn't have pulled up these because they were made of lead. But they're little small lead cubes inscribed with magic squares. A magic square is where you have like, it'll be a column of numbers and it adds up the same whether you do it vertically or horizontally or diagonally. And these were apparently some kind of ritual objects that got deposited in this body of water. And he turned up 60 of them in mm. one spot. And there's a debate about exactly what they are, including some theories. So uh, check out both of those. You'll definitely want to watch the tornado tumbleweed video and watch the windscreen getting smacked by all of the tumbleweeds in the tornado. And you'll want to see the pictures of the mysterious ritual cubes and read about what they likely are. So a bunch of mysterious cubes found uh, scattered in England. Hmm, I think I've seen that Doctor Who episode. Yeah, the power of three. <laughs> exactly. The all year right. of the slow invasion. Be careful. Yes, be careful with those if, you see, if we start seeing more of them. Uh, we'd love to hear. We love getting feedback from listeners. And so we would love to get your theories about remote viewing. What do you think was going on with all this remote viewing? So uh, let us know by going to sqpn.com and leaving a comment there or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Or you can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Remote viewing part two, the evidence. Excellent. So, folks, if you have not yet done so, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube where we have a SQPN YouTube channel, and you can hit the bell to get notifications of new episodes. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, because we're not going to go to the stock market and use remote viewing to predict <laughs> casinos or stock market results, <laughs> please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>